0: Sir, from the team 100 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance. Recently returned from the Gaylord Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, home of this year's baseball winter meetings. It is managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does each week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball of particular particular of particular note this week those same winter meetings and the events which unfolded within them and also the events which folded just after them for example uh, just in the last 24 hours here the signing by the Chicago Cubs of Jason Hayward to a six year contract with multiple I say multiple opt outs Dave Cameron described this as a fascinating contract fascinating to whom I ask he answers that question not many people it turns out but Dave Cameron is one of them And he elaborates upon uh, the fascinating qualities of that contract. The Arizona Diamondbacks during the uh, winter meetings were particularly active, signing Zach Greinke to a large contract and also receiving the young and promising Shelby Miller for three young and promising players in a deal uh, that caused many to question the wisdom of Dave Stewart in in the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks' front office. Ken Giles was also traded. We discussed that. Uh, and uh, uh, other other sundry matters. The uh, it also we can't ignore. Uh, we can't ignore during the podcast itself, during the recording of this. Dave Cameron uh, himself performed life-saving maneuvers.
1: I think uh, if I had not gone and, and intervened, there's a chance my dog <laughs> might be dead.
0: Lots there too. Intrigue the uh, prospective listener. Very exciting, that We'll get to it in a moment. Uh, Before we do, however, a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft and the Draft app. If you're familiar with DraftKings or FanDuel, what those are, are uh, daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game. Notable, however, uh, for being the the only one, or at least the first, or at least the most notable, one most notably designed. mobile devices here's how you play after downloading the app you find an opponent this could be a friend or an internet stranger either way someone who's created a profile within the draft universe you pick a sport conduct a snake draft each select five players those players accrue fantasy points whichever you or your opponent has accrued the most fantasy points that is the winner he or she is the winner Would you care to wager American currency on it you are entitled to do that in most states nor is it simply baseball one can play. Of course, that would be, that's obvious because the baseball season is over. However, college and NFL football are both available, as are NHL hockey and NBA basketball. You are intrigued. You want to know how to find this application. If you have the iOS operating system, go to the App Store. If you have an Android operating system, consider going to Google Play or something like Google Play. You can download the app and begin entertaining yourself to death. Sounds good. Uh, That is the end of the message from the sponsor, which also marks the beginning of the end of the introduction. It is Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron holding forth on winter meetings transactions. And it begins right now. Good. Is Jeff Selden there? No, he went home yesterday.
1: Aw, did you guys have fun? Yeah, except for Drew was sick, so Amy got sick, so I got sick, so he might be sick.
0: Yes, you know, uh, a way to make sure you're going to get sick too is to go ahead and take a uh, a transcontinental flight. Uh, yeah, we didn't do that though. Well, he's he's doing it.
1: Right. Yeah. So if the baby didn't make him sick, someone on the plane probably will. What is it? I would say a better way to get sick would be to go to the winter meetings in Nashville, which is basically uh, held in a biodome, and then shake hands with a whole bunch of
0: people. It is a. Uh, of course, that's where we were last week, and um, there is, what, especially in the Cascades portion of it, uh, maybe throughout the whole thing, really. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of plant life. In yeah, there. the Gaylord
1: Opryland is the hotel where it was held, Yeah, it's the weirdest hotel on the planet.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I, are you sure there's probably not one weirder in um Abu Dhabi? Um Maybe. But yeah. to
1: the Abu Dhabi people, it's probably perfectly normal. Perfectly
0: probably normal. There is the hotel in, uh, what's the other place there, where it's got a uh, ski mountain inside of it. And it's that sounds
1: the- awesome. I would love to go there. It's they, in should the de- the, they should have the winter meetings there.
0: It's in the desert, though. That's the thing. That's Okay. It's like I, it's like kicking Mother Earth in the in the, in the genitals.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, the Gaylord Opryland was kicking my eyeballs in the genitals. Yeah,
0: that's fine. All right, uh, Dave Kim, we were there. We were there in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, so were what probably representatives of all three teams. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, and like twenty thousand job seekers.
0: Yep, that's right. Did you get handed any resumes? I did not, but I talked with a bunch of people
1: who were handing out resumes to other people.
0: You know, I saw, um, I think it's probably fair to say terrible things about Kyle McDaniel now that he doesn't work for us anymore, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought it was fine even when he did work for us.
0: Oh, yeah, that's fair. Um, I I did uh, spend some time with Kyle, and he was like, <clears throat> and he was wearing an Atlanta Braves crew t-shirt, wick away. What is, what is this? A sports shirt? A performance tee? Yeah. And, uh... He was like, yeah, they tell me not to wear this because of the job seekers come up. And then a bunch of job seekers came up to him, and he was like, oh, sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry, the VIP situation here. He was really loving it.
1: Yeah, well, I think he was on a high from uh, their Shelby Miller trade to where nothing could bring
0: his mood down. Okay, we are going to discuss Shelby Miller. Uh, first, I would like to uh, ask you about Jason Hayward, the new what? The new center fielder for the Chicago Cubs?
1: Outfielder. He will probably end up in right field after they make a trade.
0: Okay, and, uh, because, because as it stands, right, they have, uh, uh, well, who do they have in the outfield? They they had Dexter Fowler. That was right. one person.
1: Their current starting center fielder, according to their Cubs official team depth chart on Cubs.com, is Matt Caesar. Okay, so, yeah. You know, they they could use an upgrade there. Uh, in the corners, they have Kyle Schwarber and Jorge Soler. Uh, Soler is probably getting traded, uh, and then they'll likely sign or trade for a center fielder, and Hayward will go back to right field. Right, but, but Hayward, it's possible that Hayward can play center, and he wouldn't be a disaster there. He probably wouldn't be a disaster there. We don't know for sure, but uh, yeah, I mean, it seems likely that he would be fine there.
0: Okay, right. Uh, so what is it? Uh, eight years, one eighty-four.
1: Yeah, one hundred eighty-four million dollars. yeah.
0: Okay, now this is a contract that you have been uh, that you have described just today in the pages of Fangraphs.com. You've described as fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, first, I would like you to estimate what percentage, to what percentage of the population is the contract fascinating? Would you guess?
1: The the population uh, of the Earth? Yeah. Uh, one millionth of one percent. <laughs>
0: okay, all right. But uh it's probably if you were going to isolate a demographic, probably those who uh, read Fangraphs and listen to Fangraphs audio, they're probably the ones that you can guarantee it's most fascinating to them.
1: Yeah, right. If you're, uh, a baseball nerd, this is a fun contract.
0: Okay. And what, uh, what about it is fun, Dave? What is, what is fun about it, Dave? Well,
1: probably the multiple opt-outs. I mean, we've seen this before with Elvis Andrus when he got, uh, two opt-outs in his deal with the Texas Rangers, but this is, uh, you know, maybe the first deal where it's like very, very likely that the player is going to be opting out of a long-term contract. A lot of times when you see like an opt-out, like in the David Price deal, uh, it's essentially there in case you know, the pitcher performs at a very high level or, uh, you know, the league revenues continue to really take off and, and inflation really kicks in. Uh, but I think, you know, in a lot of these cases, it's probably unlikely that the player is going to take the opt-out because in most free agent cases, you're signing players in their decline phases to long-term deals and the opt-outs usually come somewhere like halfway through the deal. Um, this is the first time I can remember a free agent contract where uh, you look at it and be like, man, this guy's basically gonna have to like blow his ACL in order to not do this opt-out. This is a, this is a three-year contract for the Cubs. Uh, except for the chance that like Hayward gets really significantly hurt and then they're stuck with the last five years of the deal, but I think for their planning they need to look at this as a three-year deal.
0: Okay, so the opt-out follows the third year.
1: And fourth year, he's got two of them. So he yeah, basically gives them, he, and that's one of the reasons why he took a little bit less money is he gives himself essentially two chances to where Say he has two decent years and then has a really bad third year, the value of the opt out doesn't disappear just because of the timing of a bad year. He can have a you know, essentially take a one year, twenty three million dollar or whatever the value of the fourth year salary will be, uh pillow contract to give himself another chance at uh reestablishing his value and hitting the open market again with four years left in his deal and getting another big contract. So by having back to back opt outs, he kind of gives himself uh a much more likely shot of of using the opt-out in order to get a bigger payday versus if he just had one shot at it and, you know, maybe he got injured in that year or had a had an off year, and then the opt-out goes away.
0: Now, the overall value of the contract was less than uh, what the crowd had projected. It's less than what uh, I think you had projected, but there's obviously some value added by those opt-outs. Um, we, you mentioned Andrus We've seen, uh, seen Greinke, uh, his contract with the Dodgers, uh, David Price with his recent opt-out. Um, and I think the last time we spoke, you, you went about just sort of providing a framework for estimating the value of those opt-outs. What is it worth for Hayward's?
1: Yeah, but it's a little tough because Hayward's a little bit different. And, like, we've seen opt-outs mostly for pitchers. Like, Masayur Tanaka got one. CC Sabathia got one. Granky got one. Price got one. Uh, a lot of opt-outs for for pitchers, but not as many for young hitters. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton got one, and he'll, he probably will uh, use his if he stays healthy at some point in the next, uh, whatever, five years. I think he's until his opt-out. Uh, but I think uh, if we're looking at Hayward and you're saying, okay, he's making $23 million a year on his deal in total over the life of the deal. Uh, he's going to end up with something like 5 and 115 or 5 and 120, depending on how the deal is structured, um, left on his deal when the first opt-out decision comes. And you say, like, what are the odds that Hayward would be able to do better than that uh, when he, you know, in three years? So, you know, looking at it and kind of walking through the numbers, I think, like, just barring a knee injury or some kind of, like, serious uh, health uh, issue, it's really hard to see to Hayward not getting better than five one fifteen in three years. I mean, this is like slightly more than what Pablo Sandoval got last winter. This is, you know, the Jordan Zimmerman contract from this winter, basically. For Hayward, to decline to the Jordan Zimmerman level is a, yeah, a pretty steep drop.
0: So, so Hayward's a bit strange. A bit strange, anyway, right? And we've discussed this from the, from the beginning of the sort of free agent season, um, in that the things which makes him most valuable. Uh, to, are not uh, always the things which uh, get players remunerated very well, and um, I think that uh, you in, 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 um, a conversation you held on Twitter today uh, with a user there, um, uh, it was Dave Dave L said uh, uh, the eye test is all you need to see that Hayward is a solid player, and you wrote amazingly everyone who under uh, who actually works in baseball and understands how to value players disagrees with you, suggesting. Uh, that there is a, the baseball front offices are unanimous. Well, are you suggesting that baseball front offices are unanimous in undervaluing Hayward? Because that seems like to be, uh, that seems to be a pretty big statement.
1: No, I, I mean, I think, so my point was that baseball teams are valuing Hayward. If we look at these opt-outs as worth, you know, 15 or 20 million dollars each to Hayward, or maybe like 25 million between the two, something like that, uh, and you add that to Hayward's you know essentially 184 million dollar guarantee and you transfer those into a financial asset uh maybe we say like you know Hayward got something like 210 million dollars in total value over eight years that's uh putting him right in line with David Price or you know at least close to David Price money uh and, you know I think like it's a little bit less but not a lot less uh and I think everyone recognizes that David Price is fantastic one of the best pitchers in baseball so uh I would look at the Hayward contract and say like to me this is um uh, you know evidence that Major League Baseball teams, especially the ones who know what they're doing, uh, see Jason Hayward as an elite player.
0: Okay, so who, uh, who is the one who proposes the opt-out? Uh, I, either in the Hayward case or the other ones, is it, is it the, is it the agent or is it the team?
1: No, it's always the agent.
0: Teams do not want
1: opt-outs. Opt-outs are bad for the teams. Uh, but in this case, I think what the Cubs were able to do is essentially say, look, we'll give you the opt-outs and give you a chance to get back to free agency. You just have to take less money. And that's what Hayward ended up doing. So the reports are that the Nationals and Cardinals and maybe the Angels all, all offered uh $200 million or more in guaranteed money. Uh, but those deals only came with one out, opt-out instead of two, suggesting that Hayward uh, took like sixteen million dollars less in total guarantee in order to get an earlier opt out uh or a multiple opt out uh in this case, but also probably an earlier one the earlier the opt out the better for hayward so um looks like you know somewhere in the range of um you know $210, 215 million is kind of where multiple teams valued him uh based on you know two hundred million plus one opt out or one eighty five plus two opt outs um you know 210, 215 million dollars this is a lot of money
0: so yeah th- now we've talked about before how uh uh, players seem always sort of prone to bet on themselves, right? right. And um and, you know, and that's largely, or, you know, usually that's one of the sort of uh, states of mind that has allowed them to succeed, right? It is because they've they have succeeded before. They expect to succeed, uh, succeed, not succeed. They're not they're not leaving the United States. Is not what I mean to say. Uh, they're going to succeed in the future. And I suppose that uh, probably a, an agent has sort of. um uh, the job of getting the guaranteed money, which is also in his uh, best interest, it it would strike me that that in the case of Hayward, because he's such a young free agent, there is there is a better argument to be made uh, for giving himself that chance uh, to bet on himself, because given what we know about his raw physical tools, there could be something else in there that would allow him, and, and also where he is relative to the you know the aging curve that that would allow him to. Um, actually to become better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the absolute best-case scenario for Hayward is probably something like Carlos Beltran. And I've made this comparison before where you look at it and say, look, Beltran was also kind of like a speed and defense guy who hit okay but wasn't an amazing hitter early in his career. And then as he got bigger, he transitioned into being one of the best hitters in baseball who lost you know some of his defensive value but was still a you know a valuable player, especially when he could play center field for the Mets. And even when he was above-average corner outfielder in his 30s, um, you know, it might not be a high likelihood that Hayward becomes Carlos Beltran, but if you say like there's a 5 or 10% chance that he becomes that guy and somewhere in the next 3 years he has a monster breakout and runs a, you know, 140, 150 WRC+, plus, uh, while being, you know, a plus 10 defender in right field, he's gonna have a 7 or 8 win season. And if he can have that kind of year, uh, you know, look at like Jacoby Ellsbury was able to turn basically one great season and a lot of injuries uh into a hundred and fifty million dollar guarantee a couple of years ago. I don't think there's any question that Hayward can kind of have one monstrous peak season, someone's gonna give him two hundred plus million dollars after he opts out.
0: Okay. Uh let us put uh, Jason Hayward to bed. Well he could put himself to bed. Uh
1: but we he will could buy a lot of beds uh, now.
0: We could stop we'll stop talking about him. Uh let's turn our attention to the Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah.
1: They uh, had a fun
0: week. Yeah they did. And uh I'm actually going to be talking with uh Nick Piacoro. No, just Picoro, not Piercoro. Picorro No, Nick Picoro. Nick Pie, Nicola Piercoro. I'm going to talk to Nick Picoro. There you go. Uh, tomorrow, Nick Picoro, beat writer for the D- Diamondbacks, writes for the Arizona Republic.
1: Yeah, good guy. And whatever, like
0: yeah, whatever their online entity is, maybe <clears throat> Arizona.com. Even could be. Arizona. Sure. arizona.com Sure Sounds
1: sounds reasonable Sounds
0: reasonable Yeah uh, so I'll ask him some uh, some of these similar questions too but there's a lot going on there uh, most notably we were at dinner uh eating a giant steak um yeah. when the Arizona Diamondbacks trade with Atlanta was uh was announced that has Shelby Miller going to Atlanta who's now I suppose he's gone to Atlanta in exchange for um no he's going to Arizona in exchange for Ender Inciarte Uh, Aaron Blair, and last year's number one overall pick, Dansby Swanson. Yeah, six months ago, number one overall pick. Right, and which is in fact, uh, you know, should be said, is not a trade that, uh, previous to this year could have been made because only since, uh, what, in in a uh, move and announcement to address the Trey Turner situation with San Diego and Washington, uh, Major League Baseball has now made it, uh, possible for teams to, uh, trade their draft picks just after the World Series. Yeah,
1: I mean, it could have been possible this trade just would have been announced in January instead of in December. So this would have been one of those things where the teams agreed to the deal at the winter meetings and then basically just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't announce it for a month. Because, uh, they could have named Ainsby Swanson as a player to be named later, but the player to be named later used to be a six month window, so they would have had to wait till like six months and a day until after he signed and then they could have announced the deal with a PTBNL, which is basically how the the trade Turner trade went down last year, mm-hmm. um, but the, right now they've changed it to where like, everyone can disagree. Like Dan B. Swanson's in the uh and now we don't have to pretend he's not.
0: A brief examination of history reveals that it's not very common for uh, number one overall picks to be traded, and it's certainly not uh, very common for them to be traded within two or three years, let alone six months of them having been drafted. Uh if you go by the evaluations, uh, I, so oh, sorry, I'm not remembering the last names. Kleeg? Kleeg? Who is, who's doing the work on, um, on, um, valuation of prospects?
1: Well, a lot of people, but I think the ones you're assuming, are referring to the, the Point of Pittsburgh guys.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Craig, Craig? Kevin Craig, I think? Yeah. They're great guys. Anyway. Uh. We don't know a,
1: that. They could be terrible people.
0: Right. Well, so he was the first overall pick. Um, we think they're probably not,
1: though. Thanks for doing the prospect valuation, guys.
0: Yeah, the, um, and first of all, pick, and I think he's what? MLB.com ranked him 10th, which gives him something in, what, in the neighborhood of 50 million dollars of value?
1: Yeah, maybe even more, because I think, uh, since Kevin and Steve did their valuations, we've seen, like, the Elon Moncada deal suggests that maybe those valuations are even low.
0: Okay. So that even, that trade by itself, Would have probably made sense, or or uh, if you know if you put value, uh, real value in his defense, entering C R day for Shelby Miller would have maybe made made sense in itself. It seems like a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I talked to a bunch of people in the game who work for other teams who said there were basically two trades in this trade that would have made sense. Swanson for Miller straight up is fair-ish, especially if you're in win-now mode, uh, like the Diamondbacks seem to be, where it's an instant upgrade to their team, they lose nothing off their current roster. Yes, it's a lot of long-term value, but Swanson's not a sure thing, uh, and trading the number one overall pick for you know a mid-rotation starter with three years of team control uh, seems reasonable. Or in NCRT and Aaron Blair for Shelby Miller seems about right. Like, uh, NCRT is maybe just as good as Shelby Miller overall, but he does the kinds of things that are valued less in the market, uh, and it's, you know, probably a little bit easier to buy a, uh, you know, kind of fourth outfielder with great speed and defense than it is to buy a mid-rotation starter who throws 200 innings a year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe adding Blair, who's a good, not great pitching prospect, to NCRT is, is a fair trade for Miller. Either of those trades, I think, uh, the reaction is, yeah, uh, this makes plenty of sense. The Diamondbacks traded something they didn't necessarily need for this year. At NCRT, they had outfield depth, and Blair, not a guy who's probably gonna help them that much for 2015, or 2016, uh, or in Swanson's case, a guy who's a couple of years away, or at least a year away from contributing at the major league level. Either of those trades would have made sense. Putting them together, they basically paid twice as much as they should have.
0: Now, you, uh, when, when, um, when Dave Stewart uh, in, in the Arizona Diamondbacks, traded away Tukey Toussaint to that same Atlanta club.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, in exchange at that point for, for. $10 million,
1: basically.
0: Basically for $10 million, right? Right. Uh, I think you, you noted a troubling comment that Dave Stewart had made, which was essentially, uh, something to this effect. Uh, we gave Tukey Toussaint, uh, a, what, a roughly a $2 million bonus. That's how, that's how valuable he is to me.
1: Yeah, but that's not exactly what he said. There's something along the lines of like that's the market's valuation of, it, of Toussaint's value, not understanding the or maybe understanding in I mean who knows the what what Stuart actually believes. But the public quote insinuates that he thinks that the uh non-free market valuation of Toussaint in a uh in a situation where he can only co- uh negotiate with one team is Toussaint's trade value, which is, you know, very obviously not the truth.
0: Right. And and I, yeah, I think you make a good point. We don't nec- we don't know. What Dave Stewart actually thinks. We're working off of the of his public comments. Yeah, which I is mean a, he.
1: Yeah, the people say things uh, to the media that are not the same things as what they believe. So I don't want to just say like Dave Stewart said this thing, therefore Dave Stewart doesn't understand valuation. But I think we can say like Dave Stewart makes these trades, so Dave Stewart doesn't understand
0: valuation. <laughs> so the other one though was uh, well the other comment uh, following the uh, following the Shelby Miller trade was Shelby Miller was traded. For Jason Hayward, and right. Jason Hayward is about to make $200 million. Yeah.
1: So this
0: is a good – so to me, he's worth $200 million. Yeah,
1: but I think that's maybe the more damning quote, right, is like uh one of the things that I think you could say is, is the biggest difference between front offices and how they used to work and how they work now is kind of moving away from just evaluation and moving towards valuation, right? So if you look at like in a vacuum, if you're just evaluating talent – Maybe you could say, like, if you really love Shelby Miller and you don't like Jason Hayward, they're equivalent because they were traded for each other last year. Not exactly. But uh, I think it's key to understand that uh, four years of Shelby Miller was traded for one year of Jason Hayward. Uh, that's, a, that's a different trade than just Jason Hayward for Shelby Miller. And I'm sure Dave Stewart understands that concept. Like, you know, he he knows how many years he controls players for. We shouldn't, like, jump to a conclusion that he doesn't understand contract terms. But the quote is troubling in the sense that it makes you think that the Diamondbacks, especially given what they do and the, and the moves they make, are essentially evaluating talent and not evaluating value. They're not valuing Kind of the, the performance and, uh, you know, the long-term ramifications of their moves, they're just looking at it and be like, we like this guy, this guy's good, let's go get him, this is what he costs. And, you know, talking to some people in the game, there's some suggestion that, uh, perhaps the Jose Fernandez crazy de- trade demands that the Marlins were making influenced their offer for Miller, where maybe, you know, they, they seem to have been interested in, uh, Fernandez and they called the Marlins and the Marlins asked for uh, apparently a j Pollock Patrick Corbin and Dansby Swanson and Aaron Blair and a few other things, which is you know insanity and uh the Diamondbacks were like, well, if that 's the market for what p- pitchers are going for, we can get Miller cheaper than that, but not realizing that like the Fernandez trade market was um insane
0: yeah the okay. so d- what you also point out though uh, <laughs> and I guess a post from the towards the end of last week is mm-hmm. that um while uh it's probably not good for the it's not let say it's not great for the long-term health of these franchises in this particular case of the Diamondbacks to have such a trade the it's also easy to um overemphasize the magnitude of a transaction mistake
1: yeah i mean i think that was kind of the point of like uh the post i wrote last week is saying like look this trade in and of itself is not going to disrupt dis, you know destroy the the Diamondbacks franchise like m- making one silly valuation mistake even one this big you know cost the team i don't know 50 60 70 million dollars in value uh maybe 100 million dollars in value if you are like really aggressive with the valuations uh over the next uh, 6 to 10 years so it's like uh, the equivalent of dropping the team's payroll by 10 or 15 million dollars a year that is not nothing <laughs> Certainly a team would happily have 10 or 15 million dollars a year, but no one would look at it and be like, oh, a team with a, a 95 million dollar payroll can win and the team with an 80 million dollar payroll is screwed, right? And that's kind of like the effective, um, uh, outcome that you, you end up with if you kind of work out the, the terms of those deals. So, uh, one really bad kind of valuation mistake is not going to sink your franchise. I think what the Diamondbacks fans should be worried about is that we're, we're way past the point of them making one valuation mistake.
0: Right, and that's the, uh, that's the danger. That's the danger.
1: Yeah. When you make a bunch of these and they compound, you end up as the Phillies. And I, I think, you know, like with, with all due respect to Dave Stewart and Tony LaRusa, I don't think it's absurd to think that the, uh, Diamondbacks are currently heading down a Phillies-like, uh, trajectory.
0: Now, was the, so they also signed, uh, Zach Granke.
1: Yeah, for, uh, you know, $50 million more than anyone else wanted to pay him.
0: Right, okay, so I don't know if you saw Ken Rosenthal posted, I think, today. Can Maybe we pause on? for one
1: second? Libby's chewing something and I don't know what it is.
0: Okay, yeah, let's pause. Well, oh. I will put on the fangraphs, hold music. Alright. Okay, I'm here. Everyone okay? Everyone's okay. I think uh,
1: if I had not gone and and intervened, there's a chance my dog might be dead, but uh, happy I intervened. Oh, no. What did she she have? Uh, One of those, like, plastic casings that, like, apples come in from Costco. If you've ever bought, like, one of those, like... you know, twelve or sixteen packs of apples, and they have like, you know, kind of formed in apple shapes.
0: Yeah, uh, shouldn't geez. chew those.
1: Yeah, the plastic—it's not so good.
0: Yeah, don't do that. Uh, okay. <clears throat> the uh, the the Diamondbacks gave Zach Greinke how much money? Two hundred and
1: six million over six years. Uh, some of it deferred, so the present value is like one hundred and ninety-five million over six years.
0: Okay, I'm not sure if you saw it. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, though, uh, I think f- uh for for Sunday night maybe um, documented. The, the process, uh, of how they signed him. Right. And it happened, what, in like less than six hours. From, from even, Zach Grinkey had no idea, nor did his agent have really any idea that the D-backs were interested, and then by the end of it, he was signed. The Diamondbacks didn't have
1: any idea that they were interested until the day (laughs) they signed him. I mean, literally, they they made a run at Johnny Cueto, uh, he turned them down, they decided not to make a further run at Cueto after he rejected their six-year, $126 million offer. And then uh, it seems like Thursday afternoon, uh, the day they signed him, the Thursday before the winter meetings, uh, they kind of got together and were like, Man, what do we think about Zach Ranke? We like him. We have money. Let's just offer him a boatload of money. And like then they did, and he took it, and he was theirs.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to read a brief passage from Rosenthal's piece. And you tell me, to the degree you know, tell me how often this happens. So this is when uh, Hall. Uh, Derek, Derek Hall. Yeah. Derek Hall had decided that they were going to sign him. He says uh, he was scrambling back to Chase Field. Also had called his executive assistant, Brooke Mitchell. He wanted to contact Casey Close, who's Granky's agent, uh, the moment he got back to his office but, but could not locate the agent's number. He told Mitchell that if the number was not in her computer, she should go get it from Dijon Watson, the DVAC senior, vice president of baseball operations. Uh, Mitchell, she couldn't find the number. She ran to Watson's office, but his door was shut. She grabbed an intern's desk phone just outside the office, called him on the cell phone, and he was in there with what, Brian Manitti?
1: Yeah, I'm
0: discussing yeah. the upcoming. I thought I was one, blah, blah, blah. She says I need his phone number, and I'm thinking to myself, what does she need this number for? Well, she didn't tell me anything, so I said, come to my office. I'll give it to you. Give you Casey's number. He goes, where are you at? I need you to come over to my office. I said, what's happening? Ken just called me and said, we can go for a Granky and I'm like, what? It was game on, according to Ken Rosenthal. So they have to – okay. How rare is it that a team doesn't know an agent's phone number? <laughs> I That's mean, the, no,
1: that, no one's going to have it, like, memorized offhand, right? Like, uh I, I would say it's not that the team didn't have it memorized. It's a, like, the team president who's you know, not necessarily in charge of baseball operations directly. He probably isn't going to have every agent's number in his cell phone.
0: Yeah. Uh But it's a, it seems to be a, – there's a lot of scrambling going on.
1: Right. I and mean, I, I wonder, think that, that what, speaks to the, to the fact that
0: this was not a plan. This was
1: not something that they had sat down and, like, as an organization, decided to do. Well,
0: right, because at one point, uh, what one of the the executive managing partners for the team, he he just like finds a way to defer the money. Ken Kendrick, it is, yeah. and and he's like, and he tells uh, Derek Hall, "Oh, I figured out we could defer the money. Let's sign Zach grinky
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a bootstrap, uh, you know, seat of the pants decision. This mm-hmm. was, you know, like we're in a time in baseball where. Most moves now are highly calculated and in a lot of organizations, they're lining up, you know, plan B, C, D, so that if, you know, the first thing doesn't happen, then they, uh, you know, have alternative plans and they're weighing the costs and benefits of multiple options. not what the Diamondbacks did. The Diamondbacks just made a rash decision to sign the best pitcher on the market. Now, in this case, I don't think it's such a terrible idea because that cranky is really good. Uh, but I think it speaks to the kind of way the Diamondbacks operate and how different it is from every team else, every other team in baseball because I don't think there's any other organization on the planet that's going to make a two hundred million dollar decision in five hours.
0: Right, yeah, it was uh yeah, it seemed to be quite peculiar. But you're right, they do have it. No, wait, uh sorry, how did that compare to the price contract? Granky versus price. Uh
1: so price got a little bit more money and an opt out, but longer term. So Granke got more AAV. So uh, I think price got what seven, two sixteen, two fifteen, two seventeen, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh plus the opt out, maybe you call it like seven, two thirty, uh depending on how you value the opt-out. Um, so yeah, I mean like 230 million over seven years, 206 million with some of it deferred over six years. They're very similar.
0: Hmm. Okay, all right. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Terry Pluto's book, A Baseball Winter. Um, it's called I Baseball Winter: The Offseason Life of the Summer Game. I have not. It's a uh, it's, it's like 30 years old now, yeah. Uh, but it is fascinating. It's probably yeah. this this reminded me of that in that it documents a lot of um, documents. I think probably one winter meetings. I think it's just one winter meetings, but it's the one during which uh. Bruce Sutter was signed. He was a reliever who was signed to like an 8 8-year eight contract with Atlanta. Right. Uh not a not a smart contract. Uh but and then there was like another case like another team had a chance to sign him except the guy like got drunk and fell asleep. Like the GM got drunk and fell asleep. Uh the just the documentation of teams making moves and the actual human side of it is uh, can be pretty amusing it turns out.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that has been driven out of baseball i mean 20 or 30 or even 10 years ago i think there was a lot of just kind of like freewheeling gms had total autonomy they could do whatever they want trades were made at bars uh you know it was basically one guy running a show and he got to do whatever he wants and that's just not true anymore like ownership has way more oversight especially on big deals and you know front office members with the ability the final say still are expected and kind of required to take input from their subordinates, uh, where it's, you know, kind of not necessarily consensus, but, uh, you know, polling the room, talking to the analysts, talking to the scouts, coming up with a, you know, consensus of what a player is worth, and then the GM says, you know what, maybe I just think I'm a little bit higher on this guy than you all are, and I'm going to make this deal anyway, even if it's against the advice of the, of the people in the room. But I think it's pretty weird for the room to not happen. <laughs> and, like, for, uh, you know, one guy to just basically be like, I, I want to do this. Yeah, yeah, it, um. Unless it's an owner. Like, that happens at the ownership level. Uh, you know, I think we've seen that with the Tigers, where, um, Mike Illich is just like, yeah, I want Prince Fielder. Or right. Peter Andrews is like, yeah, I want Chris Davis. All
0: right. The, um, uh, can we, uh, can we talk about Ken Giles briefly? You're, you're, you're getting close to, uh, what did we say? Fulfilling, Fulfilling allegations. my obligations? Yeah.
1: Uh, sure. I guess we can talk about Ken Giles.
0: Well, Ken Giles was traded, right? Here's the peculiar thing about it Ken Giles is a good reliever. He's yeah, traded. Very good reliever. Very good reliever, right. Um, he was traded in exchange for some interesting players, including uh, Vince Velasquez, goes to Philadelphia, and uh, Brett Oberholtzer, Thomas Eshelman, who was a very good college pitcher, um, although um, on base more of command and stuff, and Derek Fisher.
1: No, not Derek Fisher.
0: No, right? Yes, I yes I know. Okay. That's the point I'm going to bring up. Right, Dave Cameron. I know that um, you don't uh, you don't think of me as being very competent, but i <laughs> I, I'm not at least aware of this move. Okay. Uh, so not Derek Fisher. Derek Fisher is a promising. Hey, but if you look, um, what was it? Uh, was Saturday maybe when the terms were actually officially announced?
1: Uh, yeah, Saturday. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right.
0: And uh, we have uh, we find that Derek Fisher not a part of the deal. Uh, uh but it was Mark Appel, and then we would have uh, dueling arouses.
1: Yeah, arouse for
0: arouse. arouse it, was, it, was a, it was an arousing deal. I think everyone can agree on that. Yeah, so many jokes. But um, now, was that a, was that a product that changed? Was that a product of maybe a misunderstanding in reporting, or is that an actual thing we're supposed that changed in between the original agreement and the final agreement?
1: I would assume that this is probably the deal changed. I think, uh, you know, reporters aren't just gonna make up names, like, obviously someone told the people involved with the deal that Derek Fisher was in the trade, and they're not just gonna be like, yeah, Derek Fisher, you know, uh, let's stick his name in there. So someone from the, from one of the teams, uh, told, told the reporter who reported the trade, uh, that Fisher was in the deal, and then by the time it was done, it, it changed. I would assume that either something came up medically, or perhaps they'd agreed kind of in like a, uh general philosophy of like, hey, you know, we'll take uh, you know, three of these guys and two of those, uh and we'll figure out exactly which names they are later. Um sometimes that happens where you know teams are like, yeah, we you know, we don't necessarily know which one of these prospects we're gonna take, but we kind of agree that like they're all basically the same in terms of value and we'll do the deal no matter which one you pick and so you can essentially come to agreement even if the terms aren't finalized. So that might have happened where then maybe they were like, uh, ah, we don't know if we want Fisher or Appel. Uh we'll figure it out in the next few days and let you know.
0: Okay all right so you think it was a it was the Phillies being able to choose from a couple different players
1: Makes the most sense. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I would assume that it was probably something along the lines of, like, you know, the deal went through a lot of permutations. They said, yeah, we would probably do it with Fisher, the deal, assuming medicals, assuming our scout, you know, we, assuming we can do a little bit more background. Uh, But if, you know, if we don't like Fisher, would you also do Appel? And then we swap in these arouses to make, you know, make up for the, <laughs> for the Fisher-Appel difference. And the answer was, like, yeah, we do that. Just let us know which one you want.
0: Yeah. Let's get some – can we get some arouses yeah. in here just to trade? So – it is, it is notable this, uh, since, between 1965 and 2014, only three times was a first overall pick traded, um, you know, after playing three full seasons with his club. Uh, and then we have, or playing within three full seasons, and now we have, uh, uh, Dansby Swanson traded, and then Mark Appel, who maybe misses that cutoff just barely, but I think is still, uh, it's, Still puts him within like the top four or five of all of all first round picks in terms of uh, the quickness with which he was traded after being drafted. Does that is that uh, that fact is that does that is that a revelation of anything or is that just a product of circumstance?
1: Yeah, product and circumstance. Right. I mean, I think Appel is uh, an unusual number one overall pick to for for one, uh, especially because his value has diminished pretty significantly since he was drafted number one overall. I mean, if Delman Young was traded this winter, they wouldn't be like, "Oh, the number one overall pick was traded." Like, it'd be like, "Yeah, a replacement-level outfielder was traded." Uh, Mark Appel at this point is a fringy prospect. I mean, it's, it's certainly got enough. Uh, stuff to profile as potentially a major league pitcher and maybe even a major league starter. Um, but the performances just haven't been there. as Chris Mitchell wrote today, uh, even if you like kind of restrict his comparisons to guys who made the baseball America top 100, uh, which are usually based on you know uh, stuff and uh, you know recent draft uh, rankings. so you kind of throw out the guys who pitched like him who didn't have a Pell stuff or track record or kind of pedig- uh, pedigree. Um, you know, you find like a Homer Bailey here or a Wade Davis there, but it's still mostly guys who've never turned into anything. Um, so I think, you know, Appel is exactly the kind of guy that Phillies should be taking a shot on, and I really like this trade for Philadelphia, uh, because they got a lot of upside in, in, you know, turning a reliever who they don't necessarily need in the next few years, um, into a bunch of guys who could turn into something, but I think we shouldn't kid ourselves. Mark Appel's, uh, probably not going to be a great major
0: league pitcher. Okay. All right. I won't kid myself. Uh, you are, I think, writing this week, a. Maybe a, a post in response to some of the comments made by Neil Huntington, Pirates GM Neil Huntington, regarding uh, the exact division oh. between like uh, revenue going to the major league, going to what teams, and then going to the players. Uh, you'd like to uh, preview that for for us briefly.
1: I wouldn't say it's a response to Huntington's comments. No, no, but, sure. Yeah, right. right. So, like over the last few years, I think there's been a bunch of comments or a bunch of pieces, including on fan graphs by Nathaniel Groh, who's done a great job, uh, and Wendy Thurm who before him, uh, who'd done a great job, kind of on the business side of things, and pointing out that the the players' share of revenues has been declining pretty precipitously uh, to the point where it seems like uh, you know the players are just not getting their their salaries are not keeping up with kind of the growth of revenues in Major League Baseball, and this has kind of been the narrative for several years. I wrote about this in the Hardball Times Annual, um, and everyone's kind of accepted this as true. And then uh, last week at the winter meetings, I had some pretty interesting conversations with people in baseball who dispute this assertion and, and believe that it's not true. And Tony Clark, who's the head of the Players Association, actually came out uh, a few weeks ago and said that the split <clears throat> in revenues is as close to 50-50 as it's ever been, Clearly, the people who have access to the actual numbers rather than just the publicly reported ones uh, disagree with the public narrative. And so the kind of the point is to like walk through that that difference and see why uh, people are like Huntington or Stewart or the people I talk to in LRD are uh, making comments that suggest that, uh, you know, maybe the public perception is incorrect.
0: OK. All right. Well, I'll look forward to it. Yeah, you should. OK, well, I will. OK, then. All right. Well, I'm glad we agree. Yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, Dave, you have uh, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs.com. Huzzah. Huzzah. All right. Uh, that has been uh, Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. We thank him. I am Carson Sestouli, this has been Fangraphs Audio.